0: Are you a PhD, postdoc, or MD interested in transitioning into management consulting? Apply to Link to L.E.K. by March 12, 2023. What is Link to L.E.K.? Well, it's an opportunity for advanced degree students to get to know L.E.K. and the type of strategy consulting work the firm does through a virtual two-day program. During the program, you'll network with L.E.K. consultants and participate in a simulated strategy case modeled after the work done by L.E.K.'s Life Sciences team. But the best part of the program? You will receive the opportunity to an early interview for a full-time role with the firm ahead of the general recruiting cycle. Again, the program is open to current Ph.D. postdoc or M.D. students interested in life sciences strategy consulting, ideally with a target graduation in 2024. So again, apply by March 12th. Click the link in the show notes or visit lek.com today to submit your application.
1: Hi, my name's Edward, and I'm going to be pursuing a career in consulting upon graduation. As an intern for Management Consulted, I would love it if you were able to fill out a quick survey linked in the show note description. This is going to help Strategy Simplified improve and become far more tailored to you, the individual, looking for a career in consulting. Thank you.
2: Today on Strategy Simplified, I'm excited to bring you another installment of our coach interview series. In these conversations, we learn more about our coaches' background, journey to MVB, and their case coaching philosophy. Today, we get to hear from the very impressive Ray Temnuo, who after succeeding in roles at J.P. Morgan, McKinsey, and Spotify, is now a first year MBA student at the Stanford GSB. He enjoys breaking down the casing process with candidates and helping set good habits early. Ray drops a ton of great insights in this conversation as we learn more about his time at the firm and how that's informed his case coaching approach. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Ray, welcome to Strategy Simplified. We're so excited to have you today.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Happy to be here.
2: So could you kick us off with just a brief background of what was your life like before you made it to MBB?
1: Awesome. So born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, where I actually went to high school and college here at Emory University. I studied finance and philosophy at Emory and did a variety of internships kind of in that finance field, but I had an ongoing interest in tech. Uh, that being said, not having a technical background via engineering or computer science, I didn't think that world would be accessible. I think a lot of the, the programs like associate product managers and associate PMMs, those programs were as popular even you know five to 10 years ago. And so, as a result, I felt consulting would be the best way to uh, actually gain a kind of tech adjacent view of what was going on. And so, um, after my sophomore internship at J.P. Morgan, which was actually at a team as a strategy group, which was led by three X consultants, three X maybe consultants, um, I decided to recruit full time. And so, although I learned a lot that summer, the second half of it was solely spent casing and prepping and networking. And and thankfully, had one shot uh, at full time recruiting to to kind of get my chance. I say one shot because of the exploding offers that are quite often associated with banking, and so they kind of accelerated a lot of timelines for many other firms who weren't willing to be as flexible, but thankfully McKinsey was, and connections I made in the previous summer and chances to gain some early access to some recruiting programs, sorry, to some casing programs, uh, kind of put me on their radar. And so when the Atlanta office ended up opening up slots for full-time recruiting, I was able to thankfully kind of get the job done just at the, I think just in early August of senior year. And so... Um, that was really exciting. Uh, McKinsey specifically to, me, specifically to me was a target simply because of its breadth of clients and wanting to do as much tackle as possible. Um, I thought it'd be the best place to position myself, and thankfully, I had the chance to go there and do just that.
2: As you reflect back on that process, especially as an undergrad candidate, what was that like for you? What was your preparation like, and what does it take to break into one of these top firms?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of it obviously depends, I think, on the undergrad institution you're coming from. There are certain schools and a lot of the bigger names, which are such big feeders that you can really depend on things like on-campus recruiting and more of a structured process. Um, I think Emory, thankfully, as the outland office grows, is becoming more of a, let's say, semi-target for that office. And so hopefully students can depend on that more now. Um, at the time, um, I decided I wanted to do consulting kind of late into my junior year and really in the middle of my internship. And so I felt a bit behind the eight ball considering that there were many students who applied for junior year internships and prepped accordingly, and also many who did the same for senior year, right? It was kind of the same pool already with more preparation who were going to be in that second pool applying in their, in their full-time roles. And so I felt a bit behind the eight ball. Um, nonetheless, I knew I actually had a full t- had a summer internship job I had to focus on. And so June of that summer, June of that junior summer, was solely focused on the job itself and making sure that I do well enough to kind of build momentum for a return offer, right? Because you want to have backup plans, I think, in general. They also did enjoy what I was learning. July, I think, was where I, where I took kind of the consulting take really took off. And so um, I honestly spent, man, it's almost like kind of a dark time looking back on it, honestly. But I mean, truly, I spent almost all the free time I had coming back from work, just learning about casing, understanding the rules of it, watching a lot of Victor Chang videos on YouTube and understanding kind of what the point of it is and, and why the interview is structured this way. Before kind of the rules of the game, before you actually start practicing the game. And and so after kind of that window, spent so many hours after work just practicing casing. There was thankfully an analyst on my team, a full time analyst, who would spend time casing with me at lunch during the work day, and then after school I'd come home and and uh, kind of FaceTime or Zoom or at the time Google Meets, I guess video peers who were also doing consulting recruiting. That happened on and off, or I mean that happened for all of July and then on and off in August. There's also, I mean, kind of a cliche sense, cliche sense meant for going, you know, certain Saturday nights out and whatnot. Because I did know that, um, a I wanted to be back, I wanted to be back in Atlanta, and so there kind of was a driving force to be near family. And then B, I really wanted to be in consulting, and so those reasons are enough to kind of you know make you dial in for a month, I think, especially as a junior who's kind of worried about post 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 uh, undergrad employment options. Um, but tactically, it really was just a lot of time spent learning and practicing via online resources and with peers. Um, In August, again, that continued until mid-August when I had the opportunity to actually actually interview. Uh, Networking and actually building connections with these firms is also an interesting process. Um, My main point, my main points of contact actually developed through cold emails. Um, And so it's it's kind of a tricky thing because you don't want to recommend that uh, as a blanket statement all the time. But in my case, I was able to look at. Uh, individuals who had, let's say, similar peer institutions for undergrad or similar majors as those who were, let's say, less cold than others. And then I'd shoot them a warm email because I did understand kind of the the firm's email formats. And obviously, many people did respond, but the couple who did uh, actually became sponsors throughout the process. And funny enough, uh, well, I won't call them out. There's one person who I would argue was probably the linchpin for the uh, McKinsey offer I ultimately, uh, ultimately received because... Uh, she was actually visiting New York at some point uh, during the summer to conduct a recruiting and kind of brunch event for Southern office candidates from schools like, a, you know, UVA and Duke and Vandy, um, who were all intrigued in New York. And and as a result, you know, that cold email to her uh, ended me, you know, leading an invite to that brunch, which kind of against snowballed, it's even more momentum and thankfully when the opportunity came to reach out to them to accelerate the interview process. They were more than willing, I think, because of those previous connections. And so I only actually really had that one shot at the beginning. Who knows what would have happened if time went on? Um, But thankfully, that was enough. Um, And then the interview process, we can speak to as well if needed, but that was sort of the prep leading up to it and the nerves, truly all the nerves associated with that process.
2: Well, I can imagine, given the fact that you were able to see the banking world, you had that internship experience and uh, you had connections and it sounds like um, you know, uh, lines of authority and mentorship from people that were in consulting, but getting in, as you said, late to the game, uh, needing to to practice, learn the rules of casing, start to get to know people, learn about this space. Uh, I'm guessing it was still kind of a shock when you actually got into the work to realize kind of what your day to day was. Um, did did the reality match what was in your brain as it was as it related to consulting or uh, because I think a lot of people have uh, these high notions about always doing exciting work, doing fancy travel, you know, having the top clients at your disposal all the time. Um, was that your reality, Ray? Was that your expectation even? What was it like when you finally got
1: into the work? Yeah, yeah. The whole notion of advising kind of Bill Gates himself on, on day one. I guess I, I thankfully had... Um, people I spoke to, and again, who who soon then became mentors and now, are, now still are, who think they were pretty upfront with me about their day-to-day. Uh, and I, I will say the reality in that sense did tend to match my expectations. So I'm happy that um, they tempered kind of what, what I expected to happen going in. Um, and that day-to-day I can speak to as well. I, I think, um, I would I would break it up into kind of Mondays, the rest of the week, and then Fridays, right? Uh, because they were so different, mainly due to travel, right? That travel component did live up to the hype, but I thought there were some really cool, cool cities I had the chance to explore. And often it would kick off on Monday, um, usually around six AM, depending six AM flights. So you you did have a bit of like that, you know poor night sleep on Sunday night that you'd hopefully make up with on on the flight on uh, Monday morning. But that usually meant you landed at the client around eleven, so just after breakfast for many people, and and that's where you started your day. Um, Those days were interesting because I will say many people think, many people, depending on the client you had, were churning in the mornings on Monday. But for me, at least, I I was pretty lucky to have those mornings be a bit slower than most. That meant on Monday when I hit the ground though, we were running. And so this usually meant a kickoff meeting with our client for the week, as well as our team, followed up with, uh, again, more individual work stream planning in the afternoon, and usually ending the day with some analyses that kind of signal you kind of kicking off that work stream for the first time before you wrap up the day. So I would actually say Mondays were some of the lighter days um, because of the adjustment and planning that was associated with the travel during each week. Um, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, though, I would argue were kind of your classic consultant days, right? You wake up early, you have your kind of early morning gym session or run. As for some reason, everyone in the consulting world that I, I came across was, was surprisingly very fit. It was something that you, you kind of learned that you had to you hop on the train with, or completely avoid. But most people, at least in the LA office and, and elsewhere, were were quite active. So they did some kind of activity in the morning. For those with loved ones, that's where a face time to a partner tends to happen um, before you kind of get into the office quite early in the morning. And that's where you were really independent. That's something that I was actually quite surprised about in terms of expectations versus reality. I knew, of course, as an analyst or associate, there was some grunt work and, and and kind of oversight that would be applied, but I didn't realize at times, how laissez-faire would be. There, were, I mean, Tuesday through Thursday, if Mondays on meeting were effective, if Monday meetings were effective, you were almost completely independent. And that I really enjoyed from day one. Um, so Tuesdays, I would actually create my own routine where a lot of the heavy analysis and conversations and client calls that I'm going to have, I'd like to do in the morning. That's just because that's when I was the most alert. I then would try to get a walk-in or kind of have an active lunch just because we tend to be inside, no matter what city you're in, if you were in a kind of, luminescent office for a while it can start to be a bit overbearing so I try to get outside for lunch and thankfully do that with a peer those are some of the moments where you get the closest I think during one-off meals coming back I think the rest of the day hopefully it was like follow-up or add-on work but not necessarily kind of like really difficult thinking is what I'd call it at least that's the way I structured my days because I do think again the morning was by far the most productive parts for me and so I'd call this again a lot of like uh putting the the insights I need to still in the morning onto actual pages in the afternoon. And that was, again, the same for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for the most part, like a two to five block of just kind of creating actual output that would then be hopefully seen by managers um, or the end client. At the end of the days and checkouts during those periods were usually followed up by showcasing those insights to I manager at the time. And then hopefully, you know, getting the green light, or if not, I'm having the chance to kind of go back to the hotel Develop my own routine if needed. Again, that's calling a partner. That's a gym for some others. That's, again, just taking the time to relax before conducting any second iterations that you'd have to before uh, before bed. And so that was kind of the Thursday, the Tuesday, Thursday reality of it all. Friday was interesting as well because this depends highly, I think, on your office, the culture of it, your client. This can range from being, A, like an imitation of the Tuesday to Thursday kind of outline I just portrayed, or B, a complete adaptation, which is just, you know, you had a really good week, and as a result, Friday is kind of tidying up some loose ends and planning for the following week, potentially getting out early. So there were some Fridays where I was able to leave at, you know, one or two and get to enjoy the Atlanta line and weather. But of course, there were some Fridays, depending on more of the tech or PE and DD clients, that led to me kind of mimicking again a Thursday and ending up working pretty late. Uh, and so I actually do not want to be too prescriptive on the, fr- on, the fr- on the Friday kind of uh dated the friday outline but i will say this was usually based in your hometown you were done with travel and that alone i think was enough of a of a tunnel for the weekend that's something you to look forward to but that was kind of the expectation versus reality and i honestly think that is what i expected going in so i'm happy it did live up to that
2: absolutely and and your your depiction and categorization of commonalities throughout the week is uh, i think spot on right it matches it matches my experience and it showcases that you were able to identify those patterns and themes and i would bet along with that ray therefore be able to optimize within that pattern throughout the week cuz if you don't you can easily just get sucked into the work uh, 6 days out of the week instead of you know making sure that you're flowing along with the natural you know peaks and valleys alongside both a week but also the entire project life cycle
1: Exactly. And I think to your point, that's why finding out certain things about yourself, like in my case, and again, it's not necessarily the most brilliant insight and I think it applies to many people, but I am just that much more productive in the mornings. And so I think the first couple of months when that wasn't as clear to me, I would have work spill over into pretty later night and sometimes on the weekends. Now, granted, it's not a, you know, whose fault is it, but I do think the part I can play is kind of knowing my strengths and is and that was a clear strength for me. And granted, this is just including like insights about the way you work this doesn't necessarily include also kind of the types of teams you need to work with or uh how how uh, demanding travel needs to be for you or the lack of travel needs to be for you and so um those are kind of ancillary pieces that are quite important as a foundation as well that you have to take into account when you think about the reality of your of your life on the job
2: absolutely that that is the one difference between your depiction and mine which is i am the late night worker and you know i will i'll mm-hmm. get a bunch of stuff out to be in populated in people's inbox by early morning but then i'm going to roll in with the team like whenever kind of the latest possible acceptable time frame is um but both both models can work um so ray in your in your experience kind of learning these things about yourself learning how to optimize within the project life cycle and through the week um, i know in your time at mckinsey you got to work on uh, various Various different types of work, different projects, different client service teams. Um, what's one that stands out to you, and and what made it memorable or significant?
1: Ah, uh, good question. Um, before I answer this, I also want to follow up to your question. Did you find that the night the night owl routine worked better for you as an analyst or as an EM? Um.
2: Uh, I I think it worked better for me at the associate position because the reality was as an engagement manager leading projects, um, many of the partners that I would work with um, would be if they were the morning people, I would have to ensure that I checked in in the morning. So I would I would I would do tactically things like set an alarm for 6 a.m., roll over and check my phone, see if I have text messages or emails from the partner or key clients If not, like roll over and go back to sleep for an hour and a half. But if I do have those things that I had to respond to then, then I'm going to get up and just be at it for the rest of my day. Um, But I would rather just personally be able to, I'm better, a, a better thinker, a better worker in the evening. So I would optimize my evening hours and then hope to, you know, get as much sleep as possible. But you just have, you know, you've got more more and different responsibilities, I guess, at that manager level to, to live into.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Awesome. That's always always interesting to me to see how people kind of change their lifestyle, their routines at different titers.
0: We'll be right back after this quick message. Maximize your chances of landing a top 10 consulting offer by joining Black Belt, Management Consultant's premium case prep program. In Black Belt, You receive one-on-one mentorship and prep support from a former McKinsey, Bain, or BCG consultant like the one you're hearing from today. Your coach will develop a personalized plan for you and guide you through drill-based coaching sessions. Black Belt also includes expert resume and cover letter edits because case prep is only so good if you don't get the interview. Learn more and register at the link in this episode's show notes. Now let's get back to the show.
1: Um, to, to your original question, I think uh, the a pro- project that sticks out to me would probably be one of my final projects. I think part of this is just the nature of being an analyst or an associate is that um, while you don't have much purview over what you can do in the first six months or so, because you tend to have a staff or someone else who's in charge of helping develop you as well as make sure client needs are met. Um, about two years in, I'd say, or eighteen months is when you really kind of get your feel for the job. You have your network of sponsors. You you can work really quickly and at the same time find time to develop other skills. And so. Um, as a result, I think they're willing to let you be a bit more flexible. And so I had the chance to work on one of the few COVID-related studies that we had at the firm um, at the time. And thankfully, I think it's public, so it's okay because to say out loud, it's a public organization, but the city of Atlanta was actually the the, the client. And in this case, that meant a lot to me because um, I'm, from, I'm born and raised in Atlanta, right? The, the sponsor of... Uh, that project on the client side is actually someone who's a close mentor to me now and it's someone that I work with outside of kind of McKinsey and now that I'm in grad school and 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 have had the chance to develop a meaningful relationship with her um, the team was also quite lean it was myself uh, one other associate and an em at the time so again we got a chance to know each other really well um and what was special to me about it, particularly I think was that the nature of the work was. So, I mean, there was so much of a burden quantitatively to try to figure out this really new problem with work benchmarks about. At the time, right, we didn't have too much detail about COVID exposure rates. There were other McKinsey teams doing this in other cities and other parts of the world. And so you could reference some of that. But outside of it, you really had to think about your city's foot traffic and, and, uh, certain parts of the of the urban areas that were the most densely populated and how that also impact the virus's spread. And so you're you're really dealing with such a new problem that I think is quite rare in a firm like McKinsey because they've done they do a ton of strategy projects, but quite often for repeat clients or also similar in nature to something they've done before. But I think this was so new that I really felt like as someone who still was quite young, I was kind of at the forefront of what the firm was thinking about doing in this space. And so that's what made it really special Doing that as well for my hometown was quite interesting because I also had such, I think, a solid knowledge base about the different parts of the city and the things that we could potentially surface that may be overlooked. Um, one example of this was thinking about housing options for those who may be um, uh, homeless, both unsheltered and sheltered classically, and thinking about where they would be during this pandemic if they need to be quarantined or isolated. Uh, and, and a large part of that was thinking about the major universities and the size of them, in the cities and also how they could potentially use their housing and the dorms as potential uh, resources. And so having a chance to surface basic insights like that, as well as apply them to quantitative, uh, quantitatively difficult problems, I think, was the part that I really enjoyed. Um, that being said, this is one of my last projects. So it could also be the fact that like this was a uh, you know high note to end on a McKinsey, and so I give it even that much of an afterglow. Um, but that's something that really sticks out to me. I think the chance, I, I uh, if I had to kind of sum it up, I mean... The opportunity to choose that project myself, the opportunity to work on a really, really new problem, right, that the firm wasn't really doing elsewhere, that no one, I think, across any major organization in the U.S. was was solving actively and then doing it for my hometown, I think, was something that kind of made that project really special.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, it sounds like across the board, it was a, a great setup, a good content area. Yeah, um, super meaningful. And yet, Ray, and and yet you decided not to stay at the firm. You You decided to move on. You weren't going to be a lifer. Uh, you've, you, you, Your first step was to Spotify, right? So, and, and now you're in an MBA. Uh, help us understand those steps. You know, uh, why and at what point did you decide to leave the firm? Why Spotify? Why an MBA? Help us, take us through the rest of your journey.
1: Yeah, so the couple of years after that were, were quite interesting. I left McKinsey, again, during that, you know, period of the early, let's say, mid, early to mid stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, part of that, I think, was due to the shifted nature of the work. I mean, I was spending a lot of time at home and a lot of time doing something else, I mentioned, like alone in front of my computer and whatnot. And so I think that began to take its toll on me. There was also, I think, on, on the more optimistic and promising side, the idea of um, analysts who do finish in good standing have the chance to leave and come back to the firm. It becomes an outstanding offer, which is really something to look forward to because it's sort of the firm kind of stamping you and saying, you know, we appreciate what you've done for us. So I'll go kind of grow elsewhere. And so to me, it's sort of a low-risk proposition. And then, and then I thought that alone should be enough reason for everyone to hopefully consider it and maybe try and leave somewhere and grow in a different area. And so when you combine those factors, I knew that it made sense to, you or not, try something else outside the firm. So I spoke to some mentors about it. And obviously, it's a hard place to leave, I think, considering uh, the trajectory and the things you can learn, but at some point you do realize that given this opportunity it doesn't make sense to, to not try it out. So um, once I decided I would leave, the question was where. Um, there are secondments given to people in their second year of an analyst role, so to for their third and potentially even like you know third plus years. Um, I looked through those these secondments, which were partnerships like strong organizations, and I didn't find any that were too exciting. Um, a lot of the work I was doing at the time was media work within the tech space, right? I mentioned this one-off COVID study, but most of it tended to be a, a kind of media and, and television advertising space. And so I found that really interesting and it was top of mind. On top of that, I was listening to music for four and a half, five hours a day while I was doing the analysis that I mentioned. And so um, music was top of mind as well. And so I ended up trying to look for roles who were A, consultant-friendly, right? And then B... Um, in the tech slash media space, considering many of the tech companies that were hiring at the time um, were solely the larger ones who had the room for headcount, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. I did engage in some processes with them, but the target for me was still, again, like music and media. And so Spotify's, Netflix were at the heart of it, but the pandemic made, again, sustainable had kind a of bit difficult to project for a lot of these places. And so I engaged with the role. I engaged in a role with Spotify quite early on, actually. Let's say six months earlier than I actually planned to leave. But the choppiness, again, again of the headcount coming up and coming down again at certain firms made me actually delay those conversations and think elsewhere. Spotify thankfully kind of popped its head back up again right about the time I was um, late in the process with another another company and made an opportunity for me that was really exciting, carved, kind of carved out this role. Um, and this role at Spotify was actually, they're essentially a B2B play. This team called Spotify for Artists uh, buys and builds products for artists. And that was something that I found pretty exciting. Um, They needed a chief of staff, essentially, kind of a business guy to help them as they think about this startup growing in terms of its product offerings. And so I was super excited to jump on board. Um, When I got to Spotify, I in earnest thought I would be there for, you know, as long as I could. I I didn't think about kind of picking my head up in the same way that I did at McKinsey every kind of two years or one year. Um, And so at Spotify, I spent the first six or eight months, I think. Learning and adapting to the team and understanding more about the nuances of the music industry, the economics behind it, it really is an interesting space. There are fun facts like Spotify's never made a dollar of profit before that I think people are still shocked by, and, and you have to think about, I think, why that makes sense. And there's so many things driving it. And so understanding the dynamics of the industry and, and this tight in it were, were super exciting for six to eight months. The next, I'd say, six to eight months were actually uh, much more. F- I think I then began to think much more about like my own development at the company and also what I could do within this startup. And I realized that my success at Spotify was predicated on this kind of, again, internal sp- startups success, Spotify for artists. And I think that was a bit daunting because there was just so much I couldn't really control. Um, I had a great manager, great sponsors, um, but at the same, and the work I was doing was quite similar to that at McKinsey. So thankfully I was doing a pretty good job because we're applying the set only to one client. And so you know so much about the client, the analysis you can kind of do off the cuff and you, you kind of find your groove again after those first eight months. But in '68, I thought I think exploration was a lot more top of mind and, and development, and that's something that I think was missing in a place like Spotify, and something I've spoken again openly to my bosses about at the time. And and so, the seed of an MBA actually was planted then. Um, what I will say is that the MBA still wasn't something that I was dead set on. Again, just the seed was planted, but that and then you know a seed is what actually gets you to start talking to people, talking to Ex mckinsey alumni, who McKinsey alumni who are at Certain business schools, McKinsey alumni, at Spotify, right? Um, and so, um, from what I understood, the MBA would only make sense if I could carve out exactly what I wanted to do after. And so, I actually started those that second sixty-eight months again on exploration and thought more about what I wanted to do after making Spotify, after a potential MBA. And to me, tech investing made the most sense. Um, I had an operator back. I had an operator kind of rule at Spotify, have a chance to be an advisor at McKinsey again in a limited capacity as, as an analyst, but. Um combining those with the financial kind of acumen and investment lens to me would be a trifecta that would then allow me to hopefully um, kind of solely focus in one space. But in the end, business to me isn't really, it's its not a field like, you know, engineering or law where you can think about clear subsets. It's kind of this amorphous term. And so to me, if I had to try to structure it as much as I could, the three buckets of business in my head were like advising, operating, and then kind of investing. And so kind of try to knock those out. And so that became the kind of driving force for me to apply to business school um, applied and thought about, of course, a wide array of schools, and was thinking of getting to get into Stanford because I thought that could be the best place for me to actually jump into tech investing, proximity to Scott Valley, and all of that, as well as not having a network on the east on the west coast at all. So I applied. I was super lucky to get in. I was so surprised, honestly, when I did apply. Again, backup plans I think are super important. I was recruiting in parallel, actually, and so began again to take kind of. Wall, uh, Wall Street prep courses online and building my financial modeling up capabilities because at McKinsey, you do some of that, but not too much, mainly income statement and P&L stuff. Not as much thinking about like, uh, you know, working capital and the balance sheet and whatnot. And so um, I built out that skill set, recruited in parallel, but thankfully heard back in time uh, to, I think, celebrate 2022, you know, at the, at the top of January. And so that was super exciting, um, spent the next seven or eight months actually at a private equity firm in Denver with an old McKinsey mentor of mine who, who left ship as well. And again, it carved out a really nice opportunity for me to learn as much like as I can about the space in a low risk environment and and a small team and get really entrenched in, I think this growing firm for eight months, which I think is large, you know, a large enough sample to really know if I want to do this or not. I realized I did. And so I um, took that opportunity and jumped into my role at Stanford. Wow. As of, Four months ago, or three months ago. So the first quarter is officially ended now. Really happy with the decisions now. Still close to my team at Spotify and the mentors I'd made there. They were, of course, huge advocates for me, and honestly, a big reason I imagine—not that not I imagine—I know that I got to business school because of their, I'm sure, heartfelt, you know, letters of recommendation. And so, all of that has really worked out. Not again in the in the path that I initially thought it would when I joined Spotify, but. Uh, I'm really happy it's led me here so far. I feel like I've been a lot in the past three months. Mm
2: -hmm. I feel like I hear a lot in the story that you've told of how what you've learned at McKinsey and this consulting toolkit kind of enabled you and helped you to continue to succeed as you've gone forward. And I'm glad to hear that you're keeping the door open as an option if you want to go back and that there's an opportunity for you to do so. But you haven't left consulting completely because you've joined us here at Management Consulted wanting to... Really coach and mentor the next generation of aspiring consultants. And with that, you are a coach now. Uh, tell us a little bit about your coaching, your approach, your philosophy of working with your clients.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, the kind of coaching bug, I think, struck at McKinsey. Like I mentioned, I spent my my own recruiting process and in, in the time of, let's say, 45 days, July to mid-August, just solely doing casing. This was several hours a day, right? And so Outside of hitting like 20 live cases in that time or 25 live cases, there's a ton of prep that went into that. Um, When I got to McKinsey myself, I wanted to keep that kind of uh, bug. I'll say like like, keep that tool sharp. And so I actually spent a lot of time case coaching candidates at the firm. Um, This was other BA candidates, potential MBA hires and recruiting as well as laterals um, uh, from other uh, industries. Uh, And thankfully, again... Emory at the time not being as big of a school as it was, and at a target for the Atlanta office, I had the chance to kind of serve as a leader for that recruiting effort for my uh, uh, alumni program and 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 spearhead. I think a lot of the efforts there, and so I really enjoyed that piece. I lost a bit of that when I went to Spotify, and of course the PA world and 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 consulting. I think was you know, not a top not top top of mind anymore. Um, but when I got to school here at Stanford, I realized that a lot of my peers were also. Again, trying to jump ship into the firm and other places and more broadly, Kearney and PwC. And, and as a result, I could probably offer some value in that regard. It's still a skill that I had. And so I began to coach a bit here on campus before learning about major consultant and platforms. Where I can actually access a ton of people all over the world who want to do something similar. And so my coaching philosophy, I think, stems from that period. If I had to sum up my philosophy, I think it would say, I think it would be analogous to a sport, really. Um, I, I think I... I mentioned at the beginning spending like the first week of july just solely kind of watching the victor Cheng videos and reading up and understanding what casing is for what's the point right and i think that's so important uh when people are actually beginning to develop uh an interest in consulting actually prepping for cases i think quite often people could jump in make several mistakes and kind of recorrect and assume they'll be fine and some people can do that and they're really good at it they are what i'd call natural in that regard But for most people, I'd say you should learn about what the purpose of this thing is, because that should also change your approach, your behaviors in the case interview, um, how you think about, again, your interviewers incentives and and what they want to see out of this. And as a result, you can adapt, I think, your actual casing approach and PEI approach accordingly, right? And so um, for me, when I have a new client, again, let's assume that I'm with them over an extended period of time. Let's assume that I can kind of control their, their extended prep. Um, I like to make sure they understand what the case is for. If that's in one session or in this longer extended kind of window of prepping with someone for a couple of months, that means a week or two. Again, just prepping and watching. Uh, I use Victor Chang. I say Victor Chang a lot. I think he's someone who does a really good job of explaining the why behind these things. Uh if consulted on their website alone, has some good resources and it's breaking down the actual process behind the case interview and what firms do with it, How they, sometimes how they score it right. Um, so understanding that deeply, I think is quite important. If I am a single session with someone, I'll do a high level walkthrough in like five minutes about why I think we're doing this in the first place. Um, once they get past that point, I think there's I think there is a second wave or second stage, which I'd call in between live casing and prep and kind of learning, and we just call that like let's let's say mock, semi semi casing. What, the, what I mean by this is you're now getting your first exposure points to casing, and this tends to be from Online cases on MBB websites, uh, casebooks at your local school, hearing live recordings of audio cases, right? And what I want want candidates to do in this case is actually, again, get their feet wet. You're not live in a case session with someone who is an MBB kind of EM like Stephanie, right? You're in a low-pressure environment in your room, and you're kind of doing the prompts and openings by yourself, scoring yourself based on what you see as the answers, hearing live audio cases, pressing pause, and trying your best guess. And again, I think it's just to be quite progressive, almost like a stepwise function in that regard. After a week of that, in this case, we're thinking about kind of a longer prep period for someone. Um, Then I think we get into the meat of it, which is those live cases. And for me as a coach, I think you want to make sure a couple of things are really, really hit on early. Uh, One is this idea, in my personal opinion, of interviewee versus interviewer-led. I know there's a lot of conversation around certain firms do X and certain firms do Y. I think you should always, as a candidate, push the agenda. I think firms really appreciate it. And a firm like McKinsey, which is one of the more interviewer-led firms, I can tell you right off the bat that I definitely was, again, not aggressive at how much I'd push push a certain opinion, but I really did make sure my hypothesis was known from the beginning of the case. Um, I was willing to shift and ask questions after every math question and after every uh, kind of insight resolved in terms of what are the questions they needed answered. And I was ready to kind of push in a new direction. I think that's super important. It A, relieves the burden from the interviewer, but B, lets them know that when left to your own devices, like you'll have an opinion. And that tends to be the case on those Tuesdays to Thursdays when you're not meeting with your team every single moment of the day, right? So for me, that's something I want to make sure I entrench early on in the candidate having a day one answer. It'll be wrong quite often, but hopefully they can revise it as time goes on. Um, the second piece is kind of developing the quantitative skill set. And again, this is all developed through live cases we're talking about. This comes stage three. So you're giving them cases that hopefully hone in on these skills specifically. Um in terms of the quantitative skill set, there's things you can do outside of casing, and that's something I tend to preach a lot. Um 30-minute math drills and his websites where you kind of do change the difficulty and whatnot in terms of percentages and absolute numbers. That helps. Again, some people are naturals, so they don't have to do as much. In terms of the cases, though, I try to make sure with math problems that people really understand how to conceptually lay out what they want what they what they plan to um I guess, execute algebraically, and not just focus on getting the right answer. That to me is the second big shift that a candidate has to make, uh, similar to the GMAT for for a you know a test and, and the math problem associated with it. A math problem has three parts, in my opinion, right? Identifying what's being asked. Two is conceptually laying out how you plan to solve it, right? No numbers involved. And then three is kind of the plug and chug. The seven times 21, 13 times nine. Uh, and I think people would argue that the third piece tends to be the most difficult. And when someone could do that quickly, they're really good at math. But to me, the second tends to be actually by far the most important. Um, and so really getting candidates to understand that math problems, no matter how easy or how hard, really boil down to getting that second part correct. Because the interview will likely cut you some leeway on the third part and understands that you'll have Excel in the job and calculators quite readily available is so important. So that's kind of the second big leap. And then the third big leap, I think the third kind of big focus of me as, as a coach of course, there are other things that come from this, depending on the candidate and their needs, but these kind of the three things I hope I try to hit early on is the importance of the framework up front. Um, I think quite often people can come into a case and kind of memorize a framework from one of the major case books, the case and points of the world and whatnot, um, but it really does come off as robotic, I think, and it really it really can strike a chord with an interviewer who will who, who maybe I guess, privy and try to, to that kind of... Uh, to that approach, and maybe not necessarily a fan of it. I think really people need to think about how to stick out as a candidate when you're competing with hundreds of thousands of applicants. are in an MBA program, it's hundreds to a thousand. Again, all for the same kind of five or six offices, right? And you think about how similar each profile is in terms of the caliber of people. You really can really stick out um, three your unique stories in the PEI, the unique experiences, which again, you can't really change or, or lie about, right? So those are kind of outside of your control. So your case is really the place to showcase yourself. And I think you can really do that by having unique, rich, colorful frameworks. And what I tell candidates is that 80% of the time, truly, um, I can tell you how a case will go after the first three or four minutes based on that opening. And there's no math involved. And I hope they really understand that no matter how good they get case 10 or case 20 or case 25 for them, that's something to really keep top of mind. Um, it is, I think, the biggest driver. And so a lot of my time spent, especially with really qualified candidates in terms of casing, is seeing how we can perfect their framework. So as a coach, that's kind of my philosophy across the three stages. And the third stage tends to focus on those kind of uh, three factors. Um, overall, there are things that will come up for each candidate. Maybe it's the way they speak. I myself can speak quite quickly. So that's something I have to be conscious of. Some people may use words like like or um. And then, so you got to cut that out at times. But in general, that tends to be my coaching philosophy. I try to also get a score after each case I do with someone, so they have a frame of reference. I know people like like to be, especially the type A candidates that we tend to come across, want to see concept progression so a score can be a good anchor. Um, But those tend to be the principles of how I coach. Hopefully that answers the question.
2: Ray, I think you dropped so much knowledge in that answer. And there's a lot of great nuggets of wisdom and insight in there. Um, One takeaway that I have from what you've shared is it doesn't sound like you shy away with you, you, that you shy away from working with clients early on in the process you know being willing to talk them through at a high level what this is all about what to expect kind of how to how to picture and make your way through the process and that as a coach you're not just looking to help polish and refine is that a fair statement
1: that is spot on in fact again i try not to give blanket rules or statements but i will say one of the things i highly highly encourage Especially with, let's say, peers in my MBA program because they have the access. Is if your first five cases or so of your, you know, ultimate twenty twenty five, can be with actual MBB consultants, right? And then this can mean potentially someone who, let's say, received an offer for a summer, did their summer, and on the second year, that I'd say that works as well. But people who have had true exposure, I think it makes a world of a difference. Um, the the foundation is so so important, and it's really hard to unlearn bad habits. And bad in this case can just mean, let's say, you know, poor compared to uh, alternatives. Um, I really think that I love to get involved early. And if I can't, I hope that others get involved early who have the experience with a certain candidate, because it does make a world of a difference down the line. And so I do encourage candidates, if they do have that access to make use of it, again, if you're an MBA, if you're in an MBA program, that means every second year you know of, that means alumni, that means friends of friends, truly get those first three to five with people who've had experience, because again, you get to hear um, people who have not only done it, but who've also learned things on the job that are quite applicable, for example, having a recommendation and also getting a mock implementation plan at the end, like way to strike an interviewer's socks off, right? Like things like that can really, really stick out. And so early is great for me, but if not for me, anyone else uh, who has the experience, I really do hope that can just prioritize working with them, especially in the earlier stages, maybe even more so than the latter stages.
2: Mm hmm. Ray, thank you so much for sharing about your background, your approach to your work, you, the uh, the approach and philosophy you do not take with your clients. Uh, is there anything else you want to share about what it's like to work with you?
1: I think that captures most of it. Um, I try to be pretty direct so candidates understand where they do have to improve, but also I tend to be quite honest about people's strengths and telling them where to double down on them. I think quite often, again, the things that make us... Uh, stand out compared to peers in such a competitive space are much smaller than we think. And so sometimes we either have to hide those things if they're mistakes, and sometimes we have to double down and make them spikes if they're strengths for us. And so I try to be direct in calling those things out, but also encouraging and letting the people know that, I mean, if I can, you know, spend as much time as I can on this and have this great opportunity that has done so much for me, then I'm sure others can too.
2: Absolutely. Ray, thank you for sharing. We want to wrap up this conversation with getting to know you a little bit more on a personal level. It's a strategy simplified tradition. Have a couple of fun sure. questions here teed up. So what is a great piece of career advice that you've received, Jere?
1: That's a really good question. Um, one great piece of advice I have received is from uh, a close mentor of mine. And and I think the, I want to get in the freezing correctly, but I, um, the phrase was "celebrate for as long as you stressed out for." It was something to, to this idea, and for me at least, I think she was quite aware of how stressed out I was during that kind of second, six, to eight month window at Spotify when I was applying to business school, and and they could give out again. If my ultimate goal was to become a tech investor after the advisor and operator experience, and like business school was so important, and it was such a stepping stone, and my whole life was crashing down if I didn't get in, and quite often I think that we can kind of forget our proportion with the broader world and how important we are. And so for me, that honestly was everything. And I think she saw this, she had gone on her MBA as well and realized that everything will work out. And so when it did happen and I was so excited and I immediately began to think about kind of getting in a pre-MBA internship in a PE space, you know, the next week, she was quite helpful letting me know that I should slow down and think about how much time I truly spent, you know, stressing out about this, how many lost hours of sleep. Um, And as a result, make sure that at the end of it, you know, what, what is it worth if you don't spend as much time celebrating? And she was quite particular about that point, which was spend as much time, like give it the same weight. Truly celebration is, is uh, equal value to, to to the stress and anticipation. And that's something I really think uh, myself and my peers, and again, many of them have the other really type A candidates who can put a lot of weight on professional success, can forget. Um, and so truly, truly, truly would give a big shout out to Anna uh, a big mentor of mine who I think to this day reminds me of that and something I try to think about quite often.
2: I love that advice. Yeah. To, to balance it out over time and make sure that you're allowing yourself, I think, to, to decompress off of that high state of anxiety, but even more than that, to be able to celebrate. I think that that's great. For sure. Um, and then Ray, uh, what do you like to do for fun? What what are some of your go-to hobbies or activities when you get to a winter break, like we're about to get to now, or, you know, you're even yeah, heading hey, into a weekend.
1: Yeah, a lot of, a lot of random hobbies. I mean, one of the biggest ones is soccer. Uh, I've been playing soccer since I was a kid. I play whatever I can. Having the time to be in an NBA program again and in, in a place that has decent weather makes it a lot easier to play three or four times a week. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, listening to a lot of music. The Spotify bug hasn't left still. Like, I still enjoy music a ton whether that means on my own or even, you know, at live concerts. So I've gone to a couple festivals and shows. Uh, there were some pandemic hobbies that I tried to stick with. I floundered about with considering the MBA application process, but I'm trying to get back into. Those would be chess is one, especially after watching The Queen's Gambit and playing a lot of online chess. Um, the piano, especially like an electric keyboard, is something that I had in New York, and it's something I spent quite a bit of time doing with the extra free time at Spotify compared to consulting. Uh, I don't currently have one in my MBA dorms. I think I'd get a lot of complaints. Um, but for now, I'm trying to find ways to incorporate it back in. Uh, and the last piece would just be hanging out with with, with family and friends. I, I've, I'm have i sure you remember to have this experience as well, but coming the early stages of an MBA program can be um, a bit intimidating socially. There's just so much going on and so many events to attend. And, and so you want to make sure you spend a decent amount of time getting to know people individually. And so I've been spending a lot more time, you know, getting to know new peers via lunches and outings and certain travel as well. And so that's kind of been taking up a new host of time.
2: All right, Ray, who are you cheering for in the World Cup?
1: Who am I cheering who, for? Who were, who who were you cheering for? Oh, were I, Ah, yes. Good question. I am a huge Cristiano Ronaldo fan. He's actually the reason I started playing soccer when I was a kid. Um, oh. So to see Portugal lose early was quite unfortunate. To see Messi win his first World Cup was even bittersweet in that regard. But I have to say, I think he he probably is the greatest player ever after this achievement. And so it's it's nice to have that debate finally settled. Who, who are you cheering for?
2: Oh, I mean, I was just, I, I was going going from home and cheering for the U.S. as long as we were a part of it. but um, And then here's my last question for you. Have you made it to Madeira, being a Ronaldo fan?
1: Oh, that's a great question. No, I actually have not been to Europe yet. I'm going during this winter break with a, a set of NBA peers. Uh, to Italy, not Portugal, but I plan to have a broader like Europe trip, and, and a bunch of backpacking happen this summer, and so I surely will hit uh, Lisbon, and hopefully Madeira. Medi- uh,
2: yes, it, it will take some extra planning to make it out to the island. Yeah, but it's a small island. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is worth it, I will tell you that. So I'll uh, awesome. put that on your bucket list as well. Ray, it has been a joy to get to know you in this conversation. Thanks for sharing more, and we hope that we can help get people set up to work with you in the future.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Stephanie, and all the best to promising candidates.
2: Want to work directly with Ray? There's a link to his coaching calendar in the show notes. All of our coaches are ex-McKinsey, Bain, or BCG consultants and interviewers who've been extensively vetted and only coach with us here at MC. They love working with prospective candidates to mock through full interviews or drill in the areas that you specifically need extra help. You heard Ray talk today about how he loves to make sure that you don't build bad habits. He wants to work with you early. So you can find a link in the show notes or read more about our offerings at managementconsulted.com to work with Ray or a coach like him. We'll see you next time.